It's a, it's a kind of art to really have good conversations. Welcome to episode 5. For Socrates was someone who urged his fellow citizens to do some self-research. Miscommunication in offices around the world leads to delayed projects, frustrated colleagues, and missed sales. This can be avoided. There's fascinating research that gives insight into how to have creative dialogues and clear conversations in the office and at home. Full of practical tips, insightful research, and inspiring guests, this is Clarity in Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten. And welcome back again to another episode of Clarity in Conversations. This is number five of the podcast series in which I investigate together with inspiring guests how to make the best out of conversations in the office and at home. I enjoyed the many reactions to last week's podcast where I spoke with Renita Kelhorn about the yes, but response. First of all, I, I believe at a fundamental level that conversations are a vehicle for, for growth for creating something. That was Renita Kelhorn. On to this week's episode now, where we look into the question, what makes a conversation a good conversation? Lots of conversations go by without paying too much attention. Like we have a chat at a coffee machine, we moan a bit about the unproductive department meeting of yesterday, or we ask a colleague to do something and she says yes, or she says yes, but. Now, a lot of conversations deserve more than that. If we have to determine the strategy of our department for the next couple of years, we want to pay a bit more attention. And when we have a complex decision to make about some wicked problem where many stakeholders are involved, then we want to make sure the quality of our dialogue is such that we go for the best decision possible. And that requires a bit more of the kind of conversations we have. I think too much we think about conversation like, I have an idea in my mind, I have to transfer it to you by means of language and, and talk, and then you're going to decode that idea and you're going to understand it. That's Eric Boers, my guest of this week. Eric Boers is a philosopher currently writing his PhD, and he is fascinated about deeper conversations. He helps companies and organizations to hold so-called Socratic dialogues, and he also teaches others to facilitate this kind of conversations. I know Eric very well from work we have done together in the past and became impressed by his power to not take things for granted and help people investigate their own opinions and ideas. I spoke to Eric a couple of weeks ago in his house in Eindhoven where he freed up his agenda from writing a PhD to talk to me for one hour. And before we had even started the official recording of the podcast, we concluded already it's kind of curious that so many people in organizations need help with something that's so basic, having a conversation. Well, that's inter this, that, that in itself is interesting, of course. So in a certain way, we have experience that we need help to have co good conversations. But, you know, we start talking when we're two years old or something. So we had enough time to practice. <laughs> and even then, even then, every now and then we say, well, I screwed up this conversation. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we have so many years of practice and still we know every now and then you screw up. Yeah. So it seems easy, it seems natural, and it's very existential for us. And at the same time, it needs a form. It's a, it's a kind of art to really have good conversations. I usually emphasize in my trainings that you need to be clear on the goal of your conversation. 
You need to have a goal. Do you want to gather information? Do you want to convince? Do you want to learn? When you're clear on the goal you have, you can ensure not to waste time having irrelevant side discussions. You should always have a clear goal. Or not, maybe. Well, and that's an important thing that um, it is important for conversations to have a goal, uh, a kind of purpose, something you work towards too. But for thinking together, as we try to do in Socratic dialogues or forms of Socratic dialogues, in a certain way you have to um, leave aside for a while your specific purpose. Because else your thinking is very uh, steered by this purpose. And instead of exploring things, you start solving things. And exploring, and with exploring I mean what exactly is going on here? Is it a problem, yes or no? Um, without direct solving the problem, it's very important before you come with genuine solutions. And that's difficult in conversation because people tend to be impatient. They want to reach as soon as possible a kind of feeling of having solved the problem, specifically in groups where emotions are always bigger or greater than in, in small settings. This tension is high and it's very difficult to slow down the pace to bring more depth in the conversation. So that's why in more, let's say, philosophical conversation, I start with the remark, we're going to solve we're going to reach our purpose, but first I need you to really think out freely about what's going on. And it's quite a challenge. Having a clear goal and putting it central in our meetings is efficient, but not always inviting to reflect on the quality of our reasoning. So to investigate our own thinking and to deepen our conversations, we sometimes have to let go of this goal, let go of the efficiency and just explore. An attractive idea, if you wouldn't feel the pressure of daily work, right? People appreciate it if that's, if that's possible. But because of the pressure, the tension, the responsibilities you feel, it's quite difficult, specifically in, in boardrooms. And that, of course, is strange because in boardrooms, people should think about strategic issues instead of solving operational problems. But the tendency is very strong to solve things, to work things out, because then we have the idea that we make some progress. Yeah, yeah. And as a philosopher, of course, we have some doubts about progress. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. rather say, okay, well, let's do the right things instead of doing a lot of things. Yeah. A fascinating reflection on my urge to always have a goal in a conversation. Maybe my efficiency is getting in the way of doing the right thing. Yet at the same time, I'm conscious that I'm in an office environment where we run a business and time is limited. Your time is limited, um, but that's not the most uh, difficult point. Uh, I would say the difficult point is not that the timing is, is the, uh, you don't have enough time, but it's your attitude that you're used to talk in a certain way which is like you talk in a meeting or a problem-solving setting. And that is very dominant. So you need to switch to a different attitude. Like you have, if let's say, if, if you step in a coaching uh, kind of conversation with someone, you know you have to listen far better than 
bring up your solutions. So you know for yourself, okay, I have to sit back, I have to labor, I have to listen. But let's say when you meet again in the boardroom with your fellow managers, you tend to think, okay, now we're going to solve problems. So you have to introduce a kind of ritual to bring in a new attitude. I usually start with, with reading a poem or something like that, to bring in a different attitude, also a different kind of language. Because the language we use is important for the way we think. And if the language you use is very instrumental, very, very action-driven, that won't help you to dig deeper or dive, dive deeper into the, let's say, the underlying principles or values that are at stake in the question you have, for instance, about the openness in your company or the responsibility, the way people deal with the responsibilities or whatever. These are difficult issues and you should start addressing them in a certain way with, with another uh, language. I think too much we think about conversation like, I have an idea in my mind, I have to transfer it to you by means of language and, and talk, and then you're going to decode that idea and you're going to understand it. My perception is that the thoughts we develop, the message we bring over, starts to come into existence in our interaction. It's not in my mind and then it comes to your mind and you ping-pong it back to me or something. No, it's the interaction which creates meaning. Yeah. And I think in, in business, but also in business literature, there's a very simplistic way of thinking about communication and conversation as a kind of neutral means to transfer your splendid ideas. Like listening is just receiving and decoding a message, but there's far more at stake there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I want to jump back to something you said earlier in the conversation where you said, in fact, we, we all look for confirmation. Confirmation is very important to us in a conversation. It is. Is, is that, what do you mean with, with confirmation? Is that... Well, if you... I sense it's more than, than just a confirmation of I've heard you or a confirmation of, yeah, I, I'm processing what you said. No, 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 that's true. No. So confirmation... Um, let's give an example from uh, the science called conversation analysis, which is an important field of, field of, of science. Um, they analyze daily conversations, the way people have their conversations while on the phone or in the train or whatever. And if you have a clear look at what happens there, that you will see that people always bring in kind of closed questions like uh, questions, don't you think that, or uh, am I right? So they're all kind of questions that, that are looking for confirmation. So what people want to achieve in a, in a conversation with this, I bring in something and I want to, you to react positively on it. So that's a quite fundamental way of the way we converse with, us, with each other. Of course, we try to change that in our trainings to having people... Uh, bringing in open questions and uh, listening very well, uh, leaving silences. But, you know, in everyday conversation, silence is threatening. It's very interesting if you really look at it. I mean, if you bring in a, a close question and someone else stays silent, for, for instance, I would say, um, don't you agree with me that? And the other person is silent for at least half a second. I start feeling a bit uncomfortable. Because then I think, well, he or she doesn't agree with me, I would say. So before you know, I step in again. That's what you're going to see in conversation. So I, I, I rephrase it again or again. 
Um, but it's because of the sign that even the silence from the other side is a, uh, is a kind of symbol that you don't agree, that you don't confirm what I say. And we're very sensitive to that. So your brain is telling you this is not okay. I don't know whether it's your, yeah, I don't know whether it's your brain or your heart or your whatever, but something <laughs> in your system, in your body, starts to doubt or to get a bit afraid. Oh, a bit uncertain. This is not right. This doesn't feel right. So where did we get at this point of the podcast? To have more meaningful conversations, not about operational plans, but but more about the bigger things like strategy and direction. We need to slow down periodically and think about our thinking. We can do that if we don't look for confirmation all the time, but when we dare to ask open and investigating questions. We can do that if we're not afraid of silence. Because when we're not afraid of the silence, when we're not afraid to share our opinion, we are part of what's happening here. We're committed to the discussion and we feel part of the interaction. Yes, yeah, that, but that has to do with what I mentioned before. I feel part of the interaction. And the, the, the basic function of a conversation is feeling myself as a, a part of, of an interaction with others because I can't live without others. So even, let's say, even a content level, people don't agree with me. If I'm able to be part of this interaction, I feel more I flourish more as a human being because I am an interactive being, in a sense. And that's what I would like to do. And people feel uh, disappointed if they don't have this feeling that, let's say, in their action, they could not take part one way or another. So that, that brings an interesting twist to the Socratic dialogue, which we're going to talk about in a moment, what, what it exactly is. But yeah. it, it, in that conversation that you have with people, part of what you achieve is that people feel more part of... What, whatever we're doing here. I, yeah, so I of the community. Of yeah, 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 yeah. So you're, you're a member of the community. And what I say, let's also talking about Socratic dialogue, you add to the common sense. So you develop a kind of common sense, how to deal with difficult issues. Uh, and that's something that's not given. There are not universal rules. I mean, before we thought so, we had the Bible, so we have all the rules. Or uh, we, we trust in science, they will deliver all the rules. Or Mabel in the legal office, they have all the rules or the agreements. But that's not, that doesn't suffice one way or another. So you have to think for yourself, okay, how to deal with situations where the rules are, need to be bent one way or another. And that's what you talk about. And when you... So you create a kind of community and talking with each other, you create, create a kind of common sense. Okay, that's the way in this instance, from this moment, in this community, we have, we're going to deal with this, this issue. Socratic dialogue is a form of having a conversation where... If I define it in my simple words, uh, you postpone your opinion, you, you postpone sharing your own opinion to first investigate together what in fact we're talking about. Yes. That's what I make up on the spot here. Is that, is that kind of a reflection of what a Socratic dialogue is in your view? Yeah, a Socratic dialogue is uh, in a sense a, a more philosophical dialogue, which means you think about crucial issues together, finding out what is the most right way of dealing with it. Um, you need to postpone in a certain way your, your first opinion or your first judgment about it. But maybe better is to not only postpone your judgment, but also uh, investigate your own judgment. You say, well, if I think about 
let's say, what is my exact responsibility in this role? I could say, well, this is my responsibility. And the next move should be the question, am I right? For Socrates was someone who urged his fellow citizens to do some self-research. When he talked with the people who were in charge in, in the city, people who were generals, for instance, in the army, or judges, or people who were uh, responsible for the education of the youngsters. He said, okay, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And are you sure you're doing it the right way? That's the questions he always brought in. Which forced them to think for themselves. Well, no, this is the way I deal with things. I have to do, I have my responsibility, so I have to do things. But am I doing the right things? Am I doing it in the right way? That's still a question. And that's what he wanted to do. So when we have an issue in organizations, um, for instance, how do I treat all my uh, co-workers fair? Mm -hmm. Is that possible? Because people are very different. I mean, it's an interesting and important question in organizations. Um, and we deal with an, a question like that by always bringing in practical experiences. This, this might be a question, but it seems quite abstract, how to deal fairly with all your coworkers. Where do you come across this question? What are problems you meet there? And then people bring in situations, you know, I was confronted with a colleague who promised this and did that. How should I deal with that? And, um, and that makes it the, that makes philosophy far more down to earth. And that's interesting because Socrates was not an intellectual philosopher, but because he wanted to serve his community. So we always ask for, but how practically do you deal with it? And how do you know that's right, the right way to deal with it? So it's philosophy, but at the same way, it's very down to earth. It's, as I mentioned, it's about common sense. So I, I, I take a few central elements out of what you said. You, sa you said it's, it's not so much that I postpone sharing my, my opinion. I, I really investigate my opinion. Exactly. Which requires me to reflect. Exactly. exactly. So yeah. postponement is important because it opens you up your mind for others. But far more important than postponing your judgment is investigating your own judgment. It's a self-examination about your own values, your own convictions. Now, the more convinced I am of something, the less I'm willing to do that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. And, and you're rightly so. I mean, the more convinced you are, that's, that's, that's a good sign because then you're committed to the, uh, the research we're doing here. There's something at stake. Now, this really is the point in the conversation where something changed for me. I played this part back a couple of times to make sure I digested this well. Me having a strong opinion is good because it shows I'm committed. Me having a strong opinion is also bad because it can prevent me to investigate and reflect. I need the best of both worlds. I am convinced, but I'm also willing to investigate my own convictions. Well, you need to combine it. I mean, you can bring in your conviction. You can do that strongly because then it will have some appeal to the others. And it will help others to think about their own convictions. So you have to switch. Let's say in Socratic dialogues, you need to switch people. You need to state very strongly your conviction, your opinion, your interpretation of a situation, and at the same time, switch to an, uh, the attitude of, all right, that's the way I see it, but maybe I overlook a few things. Uh, please help me, or let's find a way together. 
So you need strength. You really need strength, a kind of rhetorical strength. And at the other hand, you need an open inquiring mind. Both you need. And some people have a very strong mind. Some people have a very inquiring mind. But how to combine them? That's interesting. Yeah, and I picked that up because when I'm thinking about a manager uh, who wants to be more effective and wants yes. to have more effective dialogues in his team, better decisions, etc. What you're saying is that manager needs to have a very good balance himself and, and hence also you know, install that yeah. in the group yeah. of on one hand being very sharp in what you, what you actually think. Yeah. So a very strong opinion you're saying is excellent. Yeah. But on top of that, you need to be able to put it aside for a while and say, what if I'm wrong? Exactly. So that's, uh, that's I think, uh, Arger has mentioned it like both advocating and inquiring at this being able to do that at the same time. Yeah. And, but there's another element. I mean, this is ter- this is on the content level. As uh, we use in, in, in our model of focus and influence, uh, we've been working on, we have three dimension. One is the I dimension, making clear what you stand for. The other one is the you dimension, being open for what others think and take it along with your own thoughts. And the third position is the we dimension, which has more to do with the kind of personal contact you have with the people. So that they have the idea that you're approachable and that you relate with them as i mentioned before people want to be involved in the interaction so you also should radiate one way of being uh, approachable being a human being yourself uh, and and develop a kind of feeling that we're standing next to each other instead of opposite each other because even if i inquire i can stand opposite you in a certain way okay what do you think about it why do you think you're right so uh, next to advocating strongly and inquiring openly you need to have the ability to uh, really be in contact and interaction with the other together with someone else yeah and you refer there to focus on influencer program we both know very well it's exactly a, it's a training we often give yeah um you're you're linking there to the model the iuv dimensions yes. three dimensions really of influencing yeah uh, what i take here from your words is that you say you need to develop all three dimensions and really be able to to very flexibly switch between them if needed eh? if yeah when needed yeah so you need to be aware of okay what's needed at this moment sometimes you need to be strong advocating making your own point clear. Another time it's needed to open up. And then the third time it's needed to create a sense of trust and openness amongst each other. Yeah. You need to have a kind of sensitivity there. Yeah. So that means you, you, need, you need to be skilled, able to, to operate in these three dimensions, but more importantly even, you need to sense what's needed here. Exactly. So you need to have a kind of sense, fingerspitzengefühl, uh, uh, so read between the lines what in this phase of the conversation is needed. As we mentioned before, every conversation has its own context and its own purpose. Every phase of the conversation has its own layers. Okay, what's going on here at the moment and what is needed? So what's happening here and what is needed from me as a kind of attitude mentioned before, bodily way of being there. Strong, open, together. This is worth to reflect on. I you we strong open together strong in my own conviction and courageous to bring this opinion out in the open but also open for the convictions of the other person and to further investigate my own opinion and together 
with the other ones because I want to belong and I want to be in a conversation with you. Strong, open, together. In companies, many people will operate from the stance of willing to be strong, and that's fine. But organizations also need people who promote openness and who are willing to investigate. As in the end, organizations rely on people being together, belonging to the greater cause. Strong, open, together. I, you, we. An insight that not only serves teams and companies, Eric has more and more applied these same principles and insights to the public dialogue about the greater questions, the wicked problems of today's society. Yes, um, I mean, we've been talking about conversation between people in general. We've been talking about conversation in business environments. It's all an art. Uh, There's a lot of complexities, elements playing a role. But let's say I've been working in business environments, organizations for 25 years, and uh, we develop all kinds of ways of, of helping people to have better conversations. And I thought for myself, okay, how can I use this experience also to serve society, my country, the Netherlands, where I was born, luckily born. It has a rich tradition, democracy. Um, But it's nowadays, there are a lot of difficult issues and people start shouting at each other where it's about farmers or where it's about an energy transition um, or about refugees, our world experiences some very wicked problems. Now, how can we have genuine conversation of these kind of things? That's not, that's not easy because in organizations, now let's say this in private settings, people have a lot of common. They are friends or family. In organizations, people have few things in common. I mean, they share professions, disciplines. They have a kind of contract with the company. There is a kind of goal, but superordinate goal one way or another. But in society, if if I help to have conversations, let's say about farming here in the Netherlands, in the south east part of the Netherlands, uh, people are angry. The farmers are angry. They have all kind of rules. People in the village are angry because there's a lot of stench and uh, uh, threatens to their health. Now, with all these emotions involved, how do you create a dialogue that's helpful? Uh, These are the projects I'm working on uh, as well nowadays and I would like to work on the next 10, 15 years. Do you see as a result of these kind of conversations in the public domain that people soft, let's say, soften their uh, their positions? I mean, when, when I think about a public debate, you, you mentioned the farmers or we mentioned Zwarte Piet or wh- yeah. whatever kind of, um, <coughs> you know, topic that raises a lot of emotions. Yeah. Um, people talk in extremes, have very extreme, uh, you know, yeah. send them out of the country yeah. or, yeah. you know, radical. Fundamentalism, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you see as a result of deepening conversations that these points of view get less extreme? Well, you know, when you have a conversation about these kind of issues, um, 
we work in the same way. We bring in very specific experiences. Okay, where where do you where do you where do you come across what makes you feel angry or whatever? And the interesting thing is, for instance, we have been I've been doing a uh, conversation about poverty here in uh, in Eindhoven itself and all the regulations from the government, which makes it impossible to deal with it either as a civil servant or either as an entrepreneur who right. Who's getting sick one way or another, you know, ill. Um, so you bring in the same situation, let's say this entrepreneur, she brings in, I mean, this is the way I'm treated uh, when I'm approaching uh, the, uh, the the city council here. And then you let all the different parties reflect on it. How would you feel if you were treated like this? How would you feel if you were treated like this? But a civil servant also brings in his own problems. You know, I've been talking with a lot of people and they're they're cheating me. They, they, they are not honest about it. So, mm. And then other parts, okay, how would you feel if you need to talk with someone who is really cheating and not uh, saying uh, the truth? You know, it's difficult. So they all bring in their own difficult dilemmas. And I force them to think along, okay, well, how would you feel? What would you do in the situation? Yeah. And that brings in... Uh, Usually, a kind what we call a, a, a broader mentality, an enlarged mentality. So you have different, more broadened view about what's at stake, and people start to shift in their uh, appreciation of what's going on. And the first shift is not maybe in the discussion itself, but amongst themselves. Then you see people from one party talk with each other, and they have they they sense, oh, no, I'm different here than you are. They're talking about, let's say, the farmers. If you have a, a one party and and they make clear well I would interpret it like this and someone else from the same uh, party would say no I would interpret it like that and then the other parties will experience we sense as if they are always on the same page but they are not there are also differences in opinions at the other side of the table and that makes people a bit more flexible because then they start to understand that the problem is far complexer than they first thought If you reflect on your public dialogues um, and, and, and all your learnings that you take out from it, and it, that must be thousands because you're writing a whole PhD about it, right, at the moment? I do, yeah. yeah. Um, now, it, it's impossible to summarize a PhD into one pre practical advice, but I'm still going to try it. <laughs> uh, if, 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 if there's one practical advice you have to give to a manager who is working with a group of people that where, where he wants to ensure that people really feel involved in decisions taken, really feel part of it. Could, could you formulate an advice? Um, yes, my advice would be that if you want your group to think about a specific issue, maybe, uh, or whatever it may be, always combine it with a practical dilemma which is at stake there which also is a personal dilemma so they someone brings it in as a person because if the person is there and he or she brings in a dilemma for let's say for instance the quality in uh, in social care or, or whatever and they do well you know i'm working there with other people and it's the problem i come across then um So it's about the quality of your work and you want to bring some changes there. Bringing these concrete dilemmas with someone who has done it, been there, because from that moment on, if people think about it, they 
can't escape it by bringing all kind of intellectual uh, solutions because they're confronted with the eyes of the person involved. So make it personal, make it bodily, really physically, and combine a general issue with a very concrete, actual, difficult situation. And that helps a lot. I, I'm, I'm reflecting on one thing, uh, which is uh, kind of fascinating. We've introduced you at the start of this talk as a philosopher. Yeah. And I've certain associations with philosophers, like, like many people will do. And yeah. that's certainly not um, that they're very practical and concrete. And what, what, what I've heard you say in a, in, a, in a lot of cases is if you want to deepen your conversations that you have, you really need to do that based on very practical and concrete examples. I do, and that, but that, that's coming back to Socrates. As I mentioned before, he, he was a philosopher. He was one of, the, that's one of the first philosophers in our tradition, right? He was living 2,500 years ago. And uh, he was philosophizing in the sense of finding out what is right and true and good, um, but always serving his city, which means that it had to do with daily business, how to live together with all different families and clans. So philosophy in these days had to do with practical wisdom. In the centuries after, it has become kind of intellectual uh, discipline. But in the end, I would say it boils down to these questions about living a good life. People in people spend a lot of the time in organizations. If people need to to to, let's say, find ways to live a good life, to have to do it also in organizations, dealing with everyday dilemmas. People in charge, managers, senior professionals, they have to make choices, many choices a day, ar around concrete dilemmas. They develop kind of practical wisdom. They should be aware of it, talk about it, think about it, are, are these the right decisions, yes or no? So philosophy started very practically not just solving things but being confronted with the difficulties behind the dilemmas you come across and that's eric boers speaking about meaningful conversations first of all in companies and later also in the public domain and just like every week in this podcast i spoke to els de meyer researcher communication and innovation at Fontys University of Applied Sciences in the Netherlands. I asked Els to reflect also on the wise words of Eric. It was a really nice interview I thought. Um, I think Eric is one of the first people that I've heard who um, openly disagrees with the old-fashioned model of a sender, receiver and, and messaging communication. A lot of people in business still, and communication advice, they still adhere to that model. And he uh, completely dismisses it, which made me very happy. Because it leaves so much more space for terms like um, thinking along, the activity where you kind of create things together. So you create knowledge together by tapping into each other's ideas. Um, and then you kind of co-create, which of course sounds very hip, but it, it's always what happens, you know, you, you co-create knowledge together. Um, so that made me happy to hear that because it's not self-evident that people use that as a, as a definition of what communication is. 
Um, secondly, it, it gives the room for terms that um, I've used and, and I got it from my own uh, second uh, supervisor or promoter, however you want to call it, for my PhD, which is the term of languaging. And um, languaging, I, I had a bit of resistance against it first because it, it's a bit of a weird word, you know, we know language, but languaging actually means language work. So everything we do to talk to each other is is hard work, which of course is why you have your podcast about it as well. Um, but it means that we work together, we negotiate meaning together. So there's no defined message. No, we create a message ourselves in interaction. And the nice thing about languaging and about language work is that um, you accept that it is always a negotiation and that we don't necessarily agree straight up what the meaning or what the truth is. So that means that if you accept that, or if, if that's the idea you work with, then um, that also leaves room for miscommunication because you accept that at some point you will not agree and you'll have to work really hard labor to work together to find the right meaning and to find the shared meaning or shared ideas or where you disagree, etc. And that in itself is, again, very important in business, I think, because there's so often that we leave a meeting room and we're frustrated because we didn't agree and it felt like there was tension. Yeah. So we discussed that in the corridor, in the elevator, and there's just a bit of unhappiness or unease or tiredness about it. And it's not necessary because if you accept that meaning and whatever you are going to agree on is hard work, is negotiation, then you'll also accept that it doesn't always go right and your story may be more positive afterwards. And storytelling and, and how you feel about what just happened in communication as well or in conversation is extremely important for people to keep up the spirit and to keep working together and, and to be productive. So, of course, it's, it's hard work and it takes time, but if you accept that, it may change your impression as well. Yeah. Yeah, so we we create meaning in the interaction. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's that's yeah. an interesting concept because I'm I'm always uh, probably in the old model mm. think, thinking about communication in the sense of um, the verbal and then the right. nonverbal and yeah. the, if percentages even. Yeah. But what we're saying here is even that apart from these components, there's mm -hmm. something in the interaction, probably verbal, probably nonverbal. Oh, both. Yeah, both and the location, everything, the whole discourse, everything together. Yeah. 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 And that gives it the meaning. Yeah, of course. It's like we create that by tapping into each other and by implicitly and explicitly building onto each other and then coming to a certain sense of yeah. what we implicitly and explicitly see as what is happening here or what the messages that we want to convey or identity we're creating, all that stuff. There's so yeah. many layers, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was another thing I wanted to ask yeah. you, which I thought was was fascinating about what Eric said, mm -hmm. which is that when I'm thinking about listeners to this podcast or managers yeah. in companies, yeah. I, I can so much imagine them saying, that sounds really interesting, that Socratic dialogue, uh -huh. but it takes ages. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, and I thought about that myself. I think you, you, you spoke uh, to Eric about this as well, yeah, right? So the whole time issue, uh, time to market is, of course, of course, crucial. Um, and I think people can indeed get the impression that there's not enough time to do this. Um, I think there's actually an easy, well, easy, I think there's a solution for this. And that could be that um, you are uh, doing very strict time control. 
And as a chairman, for example, you say, right, um, this is the agenda we're having, and I'm not going to just set the agenda on topics, for example, we're going to discuss the specs, we're going to discuss the hirings, etc., because that's just topics. But you're also going to say, right, we're going to discuss the specs, for example, or whatever you're going to do, um, and I want to do that for an hour, and it's completely freewheeling, and we're going to do thinking along, so we have an hour to discuss things freely, uh, we're going to see where we end up. After that hour, I want 15 minutes for decision-making. Or I want uh, two minutes for debate, or I want to have a summary in five minutes. So not just uh, setting the agenda based on topics, but also making explicit what kind of speech activity you're doing. So a negotiation versus a presentation versus a debate versus a thinking out loud activity. If people know that you have 15 minutes to do that or you have an hour to do that, that's limited and it may reassure people that no matter how unstructured and time-consuming your conversation is, it will still be okay because in the end you have your agenda set and you still know that you'll be on time with whatever you're doing. And that's Elsa Meyer. Three tips to bring more clarity into your conversations. Tip one. Take a strong conviction you have currently about your work or your life, something you really believe. And now ask yourself, what makes me so sure I'm convinced of this? And how could somebody else look at this same thing in a completely different way? Reflect and then learn from your reflections, not to let go of your own opinion, but to deeper investigate it. Tip two. Specify your speech activity. Um, make ex explicit how much time you uh, want to spend on that um, and just keep track of your time. Just really control how much time you want to spend on each activity and why you want to do it like that. Tip 3. Make complex decisions about strategy or direction very practical. When having a rather abstract, high-level discussion about a topic, ask someone else to give a concrete example of where this came up at work. And then investigate this example from different angles. And that was Clarity in Conversations for this week. Going deeper into what's needed to have better conversations in the office and at work. I work a lot myself with groups or teams to improve their communication. And I've seen these techniques work very well when you want to improve the dialogues in a team. But I'm also curious to hear from you. What kind of techniques and practices have you come across that help your team to have more meaningful conversations? Share your best practices and ideas, and maybe they lead to a follow-up episode where we bundle all these reactions and further explore practical tools and tips. I would love it. Send me your best practices to frank at clarityinconversations.nl. Also for tips, ideas, reactions, send me a message at frank at clarityinconversations.nl. And next time in this podcast, I talk to Scott Miller, Executive Vice President of Franklin Covey and also author of the book Management Mess to Leadership Success. Your job is not to be the genius, but rather the genius maker of others. Now that's next time. For now, thanks to Eric Boers as my guest in this episode and Els de Meyer for her reflections. Thanks for listening to Clarity in Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten.